podcast where Christian and I talk about all our favorite bad and good movies. And today, we are talking about the 2005 Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> anyway, Sarah, um, mm-hmm. I know that this was one of your personal favorite movies growing up as a kid. Why? I don't know. It was just, obviously, this. <laughs> Sorry was like, if that sounds mean, by the way, but like. It was one of my parents' is like something they would watch on. I shouldn't have put ice in here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I forgot about the ice makes sound. Anyway, Christian's still sick. (laughs) (coughs) Fuck you. Alright, go on. Why? Why? So, this was one of your like childhood favorite movies. Mm -hmm. Why? Why did you like this movie? Um, obviously it was, like, my parents' favorite movie, so I think it was something that they always put on. Yeah. So it was just something, like, I would always watch. And I remember watching it this time. I have a big nostalgia from there for the beginning up until a certain extent to the movie. And then after that, I'm just like, I don't remember this happening. This movie is fun up to a certain extent. Yeah, literally. And then everything after that is just work. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, I do not care. Yeah, literally. I wonder why it fell off so hard. Literally, I just love the dolphin part. <laughs> So best. long, and thanks for all the fish. So, this film was directed by Garth Jennings, who also directed Sing, Sing 2, The Secret Life of Pets, and Son of Rambo. So, yesterday, before we finished the movie today, the mm-hmm. day of the recording, we like to finish them earlier, but, you know, we're lazy. Yesterday, <laughs> we were watching Sing, and that was, Sing 2, mm-hmm. and that was also directed by Garth Jennings, mm-hmm. and Sarah's like, why does that name sound familiar? Yeah, like, literally. Like, watching the closing credits, and... Well, here we are. <laughs> so, the screenplay was by Douglas Adam and Carrie Kirkpatrick. Kirkpatrick? Yes, and oh, it's cool. based on the book series, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Christian, did you ever read the books? No, I've seen them, I never I've seen them for sale in Barnes & Noble. Yeah. Like, the whole series. Yeah. And I, I think... I'm, I don't know if I'm wrong, but, like, a lot of the events in this movie take place in the other books yeah i think i think they tried to fit all of the books into this one movie i guess that's what i think they did if it works i guess it doesn't work (laughs) it never works so the budget for this film was 50 million but it broke 104.5 million so they did pretty good i mean they got they got their money back it happens yeah so this stars martin freeman who was also in the hobbit trilogy love martin freeman black panther and sherlock I love him too. I think he's so hot. Is he Irish or English? I have no idea. Let's see. Let's see, shall we? Keep going. Our hipster queen, Zoe Deschanel, who is the younger sister of Emily Deschanel from Bones. Uh, I was on TikTok earlier, mm-hmm. and Zoe Deschanel's page showed up on my For You page. Oh, really? I thought that was funny. I, I should mention Yeah, she's that. our hipster queen, bro. She's our hipster queen. Our hipster queen. Our hipster queen. She's also he's starred English. in New Girl, as well as Elf. He's English, by the way. I knew it. He he's, looks English. He's from Hampshire. As well as we got another person we have had on this podcast before. Who is that? Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman? What movie was that? Oh, I wonder what... Die Hard. Die Hard. Die Hard. If you haven't heard that recording, I suggest you go listen to it now. It was part of our Christmas... Recording it was a shit show. Well, actually, editing it was a shit show. But recording it was very, very fun. We yeah, had a we had a time. great time recording it. Great time. Not, so go check it not out. Not so much after that. So, also, John Malkovich is on this movie. Yeah, he is. There are a lot of people in this movie. Mm-hmm. This muscle movie is very British. 
I never noticed that until like it literally takes place in England. I didn't until know they that go, until, until they go to older. until they go to space. Right? Yeah, I, I didn't know that until they were older, and I was like, oh, that makes sense. I think it's really funny though, just the way this movie starts. Like, oh, your house is getting demolished for a bypass, and yeah. Earth is getting demolished for a bypass. <laughs> I think the setup is done really, really well, and I'm not sure if because you know uh, Douglas Adams, he wrote a part of the screenplay yeah. before he died. So he died before this movie was finished. What a shame. So another writer for the film, uh, I believe uh, Carrie Kirkpatrick, he was brought on to help finish. So, and I think that's why this film feels like two different movies, kind of. Like, I feel like the tone is, it gets set very well in the beginning, but towards the middle, it really falls off and it feels like a completely different movie. Mm -hmm. And I think the ending really falls off. You're not really sure if it's the ending. Yeah. Because it was fun at first, but then after a while, it starts to be like, why am I watching this again? No, yeah, definitely. I get you. And I think that's why it's because they had the tone of the film was probably because they had two different people writing, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know. And that's why I say, like, I really like the idea that the author gets to, like, have a certain say in things. And I think it works really, really well when done right. But if it doesn't work, then it turns into Fifty Shades, so. Or Harry Potter. Mm. Mm. So they tried to make this film before as early as the 70s. I saw there was, like, a 1980s version. Yeah. Which brings me back to, like, Dune. I feel like some sci-fi is too hard to replicate on screen. So what do you think about having to wait until technology i don't know i mean i get it but Mm -hmm. it's also like because on one hand you have like uh like star wars which looked really good for its time and even like kind of holds up now yeah in terms of like uh effects and whatnot Mm -hmm. but then you have like dune where Mm -hmm. the effects do not hold up at all yeah or just things like that and i'm just like i don't know i feel like star wars i kind of have to like especially with the original trilogy i have to really like expand my disbelief you know and be like okay i just feel like once like there was a brief period like when they started messing with cgi Uh and it was kind of just like oh gross yeah 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 Yeah, and they're like but i feel like we had to get through that period to get better cgi yeah anyway what do you think yeah i agree so Adams, the author, turned down movie offers because he was afraid his story would get turned into a Star Wars with jokes. Star Wars with jokes? Mm-hmm. I can see that. <laughs> so what from what I researched, I would say this film has somewhat mixed but overall positive reviews. Yeah. What do you think? Do you like the film? I liked it the first time I watched it, mm-hmm. but it's kinda just like dated. Dated. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't even say dated. It's just like wasn't special this time mm-hmm. I watched it with you and then like a little on my own but mainly with you mm-hmm. and I don't know it was kind of alright like I feel like every part I looked up and watched the screen I was just like oh yeah we're at this part mm-hmm. um yeah and I was like I remember this being better the first time I watched it you know yeah Roger Ebert, film cricket, finds the film tiresomely twee and notice that it obviously thinks it is being funny at times when you do not know, do not have the slightest clue of why it is funny. What do you think about that opinion? Yeah, that makes sense. Like, it's like uh, trying too hard to mm-hmm. be funny, you know? Mm-hmm. I feel like it was a lot more natural. It would be. I can funnier. see why I like this as a kid, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I especially like... I think one of my favorite aspects of this film film is the guide itself. Uh-huh. And I feel like... 
it's used pretty well but i feel like it kind of comes especially in the second act of the film i feel like it comes out like inappropriately i'm like okay why do i need to know this also and i hate how the guide kind of switches from narrator to guide i really hate that there's like there's no swift like how am i supposed to know who's talking you know yeah like it's the same guy that's talking to us as the narrator and the guide but like there needs to be two distinguishing things you know what i mean yeah and i just feel like they didn't really need a narration to be honest with you no yeah do you agree oh yeah kind of i don't know there's just a lot of this movie around just like could have been better there. Mm-hmm. Could have been better here. And granted, mm-hmm. we're talking about a movie that's like seventeen years old now. Yeah, I know. Almost eighteen years old. Yeah. So it's just like. Mm. Well, that is all. I- Wait, I have one more Wait. fact. I have one more fact. Oh really? Yeah, that I think you'll like. <coughs> did you know Adams wrote for Doctor Who? I did not. Yeah. But that makes sense though. Yeah. I mean, it's early two thousands in Britain. So. During the Tom Baker days. Tom Baker. Mm-hmm. I don't know who that is. It's a so does this film give off Doctor Who vibes? No. Oh, okay. Well, did you know The Hitchhiker's Guide is a parody of the Encyclopedia Galactica from Isaac Ishmov's Foundation novels? Isaac? You mean Asimov? I guess. What'd you say, Ishmov? I don't know. That's probably how I wrote it. Maybe. Anyway. That does look like With what, with what novels? Foundation novels. Oh. Did you read those? No. Oh. Then how do you know what I'm talking about? I just know who Isaac Asimov is. Who is that? He's an author. What did he write? <sighs> since, he, you wanna, since you know so much. He wrote Foundation. Awesome. I, I, Robot. Oh! Okay. The, uh, uh, the Foundation and Empire. It's another book. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll try to get to a lot of his books are like in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Uh, I'll try to get to the books you might know. Mm-hmm. Asimov's Guide to the Bible. Mm. I feel like they make a reference to that. Yeah, The Positronic Man. Mm. Uh, there's more. I, I'm just trying to find, but like, you're fine. Oh, anyway, are you ready to get into it? Yes, do you have any questions for me? No. Alright, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So we open with the sounds of dolphins as we see one swimming around and just looks happy to be included when you get a Stephen Fry narration as our guide, as he tells us, it's important and popular fact that things are not always what they seem as we get like shots of more dolphins doing like tricks at SeaWorld and entering them, entertaining the masses. Entertaining the masses. Yeah, but did you know that Stephen Fry, who inherited the role of the guide from the late Peter Jones was a close friend of the late Douglas Adams. They were also both graduates of Cambridge University, though Fry was five years younger. Oh. Interesting fact, I know. Very interesting. For instance, as the narration continues, on the planet Earth, man had always assumed he was the most intelligent species occupying the planet, instead of the third most intelligent. The second most intelligent creatures were dolphins, who curiously enough had long known of the impending destruction of the planet Earth. They made many attempts to alert mankind, but most of their communications were misinterpreted as amusing attempts to punch footballs or whistles for tidbits. Yeah. So they eventually decided they'd leave Earth by their own means. 
The last ever dolphin message was misinterpreted as a sophisticated attempt to do a backward somersault through a hoop, whistling the Star Spangled Banner. But in fact, the message was this, so long and thanks for all the fish. And then we get this amazing, like, thing of dolphins swimming and leaving Earth singing this song. This is the best part, by the way. Yeah, so this is, like, the song title is the title of the fourth book. The song was written by an English composer, Joby Talbot? Talbot? And conducted by Christopher Austin and sung by the Tana Bree Choir. It was also posted as the most important part of the song that the final sung word of fish sh- should be preferably be held for 20 seconds. And I think we should try. Wait, and the, try what? To sing fish for 20 seconds. All right, I'll set a timer. Okay, cool, cool. You ready? Yes. Okay. Ready? Yes. Fish. pretty good <laughs> yay I, I impressed Sarah <laughs> and I did that with a sore throat too <laughs> the kind narration begins as we see the sun rising and birds chirping just to remind us how beautiful earth truly is the guide says the extraordinary story of the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy begins very simply it begins with a man we see a small house and it's super lovely I would live there and we see Arthur Dent, played by Martin Freeman, wake up in the morning and hit his head on his way down the stairs to make breakfast. Yeah. The guide describes him as an earthly man who no more knows his destiny than a tea leaf that knows the histories of the East India Company. His name is Arthur Dent. He is a five foot eight inch tall ape descendant. Someone is trying to drive a bypass through his house. So what do you think of this introduction of our main protagonist here? I thought it was all right, personally. Yeah. I think he definitely represents the everyday man, but the man where he can't do anything right, so in a way it's kind of a blank character for the audience to claim. Yeah. Yeah, so you agree? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we see a bunch of construction crew and their equipment, and then we get a quick jump to Arthur on the floor in front of a bulldozer so they don't destroy his house. We learn that they are trying to build a bypass on Arthur's property, and Arthur is like, why? And the construction lawyer guy is like, because that's what people do, build bypasses. Which I think is so hilarious. So Arthur is like, no, I'm not moving, and I'm protesting. And Laura is like, you should have protested a year ago. These plans have been sitting here waiting to be done. Arthur says he will just lie here, and the lawyer tells him he can lie there, but there won't be much damage done to the bulldozer if you do. So we hear the narration again tell us, by strange coincidence, none at all exactly how much suspicion ape descendant Arthur had that one of his closest friends was not descended from an ape, but was in fact from a small planet somewhere in the vicinity of Betelgeuse. It's Betelgeuse. It's Betelgeuse. It's Betelgeuse. That's literally Betelgeuse. It's Betelgeuse. It's literally what it says in the movie. Betelgeuse. I'm not reading it like that. Christian's a hater. So we meet Ford as he tells Arthur that he has to tell him something. So they must go buy drinks. Arthur's like, no, they're going to demolish my place. And Ford is like, how do you know? And Arthur's like looking around at all the construction. Ford's like, right. So um, Ford again tries to tell Arthur something, but Arthur is like, what about my house? And Ford's like, think, 
Ford thinks for a second, and then starts handing out beers to all the construction workers, telling them that Ford has brought them good tidings of peanuts and beer. Woo! He's like, so British. He's like selling around peanuts. Yeah, too. so British. Mm-hmm. This works and distracts the construction workers from demolishing Arthur's house, so Ford is able to get Arthur up and take him to the pub. So they make it inside the pub, and Ford, Ford orders six pints and tells the barman to keep the change. The world's about to end in six minutes. So Ford has been saying things like this every two minutes since we, like, as the audience, I've met him. How do you feel about it? I'm like, what you know? It's annoying. Because I would have been like, okay, seriously, what are you talking about? Yeah, literally. So we see Ford down a whole pint, and Arthur is like, it's only lunchtime. Ford tells him to eat peanuts because he's going to need the salt. Arthur, Arthur. Arthur, finally getting tired of Ford being ominous and secretive, asks Ford what's going on. Ford asks Arthur what if he ha- what if he wasn't from Earth, but from another planet. And Arthur laughs, telling him that is something that he would say. And then Ford asks Arthur if he remembers when they first met. So we get a cutaway, and we see Ford wearing the same exact outfit in this memory, carrying a bouquet of flowers, and stops in the middle of the road with his hand out while humming while a car approaches. Arthur, seeing this, rushes to help Ford and pushes him out of the way so Ford doesn't end up underneath a Chevy. We cut back to reality as Ford asks Arthur if he thought it was a bit strange that Ford tried to shake hands with a moving car. Arthur simply explains that he thought Ford was just drunk, but Ford tells him it's because he thought cars were the dominant life form. Ford thanks Arthur for saving his life, so now he will do the same for Arthur. Arthur complains that his life sucks and Ford is trying to make him feel better and tells him he knows Arthur is upset about the house. Arthur then corrects Ford saying he isn't upset about the house but about a girl and pulls his phone out to show a picture of her. Ford asks who he is and Arthur corrects him by saying she. Which I think is really funny because like not only is he calling Zoe Deschanel a boy Mm -hmm. but like it's because he's an alien he, he probably doesn't know what male or females are. That's true. And I thought, and I just think that's really funny. Very. We learned her name is Trisha McMillan and that she and Arthur had met at a fancy dress party. So we cut to a flashback of this fancy dress party and everybody is in different costumes and I see a cowboy and a ghost and even a pig while Arthur is just like Jane's father from Tarzan. So we finally meet Trisha, played by Zoe Deschanel. I love Trisha. Dressed as Darwin, asked Arthur who he is, and he tells her that for his last-minute costume, he's dressed as Livingston. Livingston. And, and tells her his costume is not as cool as hers, and guesses she is Darwin. Trisha obviously. Charles Darwin, by the way. Oh my god. It's a costume party. I think they gathered that. Just teasing. Trisha obviously likes that he guessed her costume right and tells him everyone keeps calling her Santa much to her annoyance. But did you know that this fancy dress party was inspired by Douglas and Adam's 40th birthday? I did not know that. Yeah, which happened in 1992. And at this real party, Adams introduced Darwinian evolutionist Richard Dawkins to his future wife, Lila Ward. Aww. I know. So, and in this movie, Arthur, before he, like, meets Trisha, he's, like, reading uh, Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, when he meets Trisha. Yeah. He's dressed as Charles Darwin. So that's a, just a little, little cute little homage. Cute little homage. Mm-hmm. An homage. So as they're talking about their costume, Arthur, 
Arthur calls the party-goers drunken idiots, and since Trisha cannot hear over the music, she asks him to repeat himself, and when he does, the music stops, and suddenly everyone can hear Arthur call everyone at the party idiots. Ford breaks the flashback by commenting on how awkward that must have been for Arthur, but Arthur said it was worth it because he got to spend the rest of the party hanging out with Trisha as we get pulled into another flashback of that same night. So Arthur and Trisha are flirting hella hard, and she kisses him on the cheek and asks him if they should go somewhere, and Arthur tells her that they could go anywhere. Trisha says Madagascar, and Arthur was like, I was going to suggest another club, and that's when Arthur realizes that she is not joking. Arthur tells her that he can't go, and she challenges this by asking why not. And he can't give her a solid answer, and Arthur asks her again if she is serious. And she, honest to God, tells him that she wants to go somewhere she has never been before, and she wants to take Arthur. And she asks him one last time if he will go with her. Arthur tells her no because he has a job, and she tells him that he can just get a new one when he comes back. And he says that he can't go because he doesn't even know her real name. And she tells him, Arthur then asks Trisha if they could just travel somewhere closer like Cornwall. Trisha is visibly disappointed before their conversation gets interrupted by some pretty good looking guy asking Trisha if she is bored by Arthur and ask if she wants to see his spaceship. Ooh. Ooh. So like Cornwall, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Cornwall I think it's the place where uh, War of the Worlds takes place. Thought that was Kent. No, it's Stephen Cornwall. Whatever. Look it up. <sighs> Technically, it's in like a different town. Is it Cornwall? War of the Worlds. Uh. Plot. There we go. Just look up where. Just put up Cornwall. Why are you doing that? Uh, it's in Woking in Surrey. Oh, that was way off. Okay, never mind. Surrey is there. Where is Cornwall? Oh, Cornwall. Oh, Cornwall's that. Okay. So I was right? No. Okay, oh. so War of the Worlds takes place, like, here. Mm-hmm. Cornwall is this one on the end. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. 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 So, we're pulled out of the flashback, and Arthur is feeling all the feels, which I gather is that he's feeling really hurt and defeated because he really liked Trisha, and that he found someone just like him. And I can tell it really sucks to lose, again, to the guy who can do everything, you know? You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. What did I just say? It really sucks for the guy who can do everything. Like, or, or like... It sucks losing to the guy who can do Yeah, losing to the guy who can do anything. So Ford tells Arthur, like, oh, yeah, that sucks. But we have, like, two minutes while he pulls out his, like, space doohickey thing. And um, have you noticed that this lady sitting next to them is just Dude, staring? yes. Yeah. It's just scaring me. So Arthur remembers his house is about to get demolished and runs out of the pub while Ford takes his last sips of beer and buys a round for everyone in the pub. The bartender is like, do you really think the world is going to end? And while Ford puts his hat and coat back on, he answers honestly and tells them yes. The bartender asks if they should lie down with paper bags over their head and Ford tells them if they would like to. The bartender asks if it would help, and Ford tells them not at all and goes to leave. So how would you feel if Earth, you got told Earth was going to be destroyed? I don't know. I don't know how I'd feel. Why? I don't know. So, so Hera's ambivalent about our world. What does that mean? It means you don't care. I care. 
I just, I don't know how I'd react. I mean, what can you do, you know? Yeah. So Arthur makes it back to his house, but it, it's completely gone uh, with his furniture and clothes still inside. And wow, rude. And so Arthur's house is pretty much flat at this point, And Arthur's, like, really upset and frantic. Uh, but then suddenly the workers, like, stop working. And they run and, like, scream. And Arthur's like, what, what the fuck? And we finally see why they're running. And there's this giant, like, spaceship over them. And Arthur starts freaking out freaking out as Ford finds a towel and Arthur asks like what what this is and Ford explains it's a Vogon construction fleet and that Ford had picked up their signal this morning and that's how we knew that Earth was going to be destroyed Ford grabs onto Arthur and Arthur uh, and hands Ford grabs onto Arthur and hands Arthur a towel to keep as Ford holds up his left thumb with a ring that signals that they wish to enter or hitchhike if you if you will so in the next scene we get a Vogon addressing the people of Earth and he says people of Earth this is Prostetnik Vogon Yeltz of the Galactic Hyperspace Planning Council as you are probably aware plans for the development of the outlying regions of the galaxy involve the building of a hyperspace express route through your star system and your planet is one of those scheduled for demolition so after he says this we get scenes of different landmarks and people screaming we even see the pub of people from before, but they're all lying on the ground with bags over their head, which is really sad. It's really dark. And so the Vogon, the Vogon continues and says the same thing to the people of Earth as the construction guy said to Arthur by saying, There's no point acting surprised about it. The plans have been on display at your local planning office in Alpha Centauri for 50 Earth years. If you can't be bothered with local affairs, that's your lookout. Which I, I will say, this part was pretty funny. Yeah. Like, just how casual about it. Like, oh, you should have come to the what meetings. What I like about the Vogon, though, is just that, like, they are literally by-the-book people. They are just following, like... But the with the like what somebody else higher than them says, yeah. And I just think, and I just think that's like such an interesting villain. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, so people are running and screaming and trying to find cover, and this woman is reading her newspaper, just minding her business, like whatever. But did you know that the lady in this scene is actually Douglas Adams's mother? I did not. Yeah. I said yes, queen. Yes, queen. So after the Bogon gets done addressing the people, they start the, de- the demolition. Okay, so you would think, like, the- with these kind of things, that they saw Earth wasn't evacuating, like, the people on it. Yeah. You would think that they would, like, be like, hey, you do know that this is coming, right? Maybe you should start getting people off the planet. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because that's like blowing up a building with people in it. Uh, happens. I guess. So we see that Arthur is hanging on to Ford for dear life as he screams, and we finally see that the big spaceship is just in that area, and that there is not just in that area, but there are like millions of them just covering the entire Earth. And Earth just vaporizes as it was never there. So how does that make you feel? Mm. Like seeing Earth be destroyed like that? I was, I was kind of just like, well, damn. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, all right, fine be like that that's hilarious bro i thought i felt kind of sad yeah like oh i don't know kind of made me feel like my life was smaller than it really is you know Mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah so after earth is destroyed we see this book floating in the galaxy and what is this book well it is our title card so what did you think of that whole setup for the beginning i thought it was interesting i thought it was interesting too 
when I took my sci-fi class, my teacher told me, he was like, you know, if you write a sci-fi film, you always have to start your book in an, an Earth or an Earth-like equivalent setting. Yeah. And I think just think that's really interesting. Yeah. Especially how this book starts off in. Yeah. 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 So, the guide then tells us what the Hitchhiker's Guide really is as the pages of the book open to show us a screen. The screen then shows us things through these cute little cartoons. And the guide explains that the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a wholly remarkable book. Perhaps the most remarkable, certainly the most successful, ever to come out of the great publishing corporations of Ursa Minor. More popular than the Celestial Home Care Omnibus. Better selling than 53 More Things to Do in Zero Gravity, and more controversial than uh, Tha'ulan Kalufid's trilogy of philosophical blockbusters, Where God Went Wrong, Some More of God's Greatest Mistakes, and Who Is This God Person Anyway? It's always supplanted... It's already supplanted in the Encyclopedia Galactica as a standard repository of all knowledge and wisdom for two important reasons. First, it's slightly cheaper, and second, it has the words Don't Panic printed in large, friendly letters on its cover. And in the next scene, we see that Arthur is the one holding the guide, and here we learn with him that Ford writes the book. Arthur, realizing his predicament, asks Ford if he should ask where they are, and Ford tells Arthur that they're safe for now. So... In the room that these guys are in... It's scary. Yeah. It is so, <laughs> it's so like, saw scary. It's so terrifying. <laughs> oh my gosh. Ford uh, tells Arthur they are in the washroom of the construction fleet. Arthur starts panicking, talking about how he wants to get home, but his home is demolished. While that is going, Ford finds the light switch, and Ford brings Arthur back to reality, telling him Earth has gone too, while giving Arthur a hug to kind of calm him down. Ford tries to look for a safe exit as Arthur comes to terms with Earth and everyone he knows is gone and asks Ford if there is anything he could have done and Ford tells him no. Ford then tells them that it's very important that Arthur listens to him because the galaxy is a dangerous place and Arthur is going to need all the help he can get. What do you think? So I think far. Martin Freeman is typecasting. Really? Yeah. What do you mean typecasting? I mean, I feel like he plays the same character, the like oblivious like white guy. <laughs> the oblivious white guy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? Oh, like in Black Panther. Yeah. I just don't know. I want to fuck him. You're funny. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, go ahead. Ford puts the towel that he brought around Arthur and tells him to always have it, and to also help him find an exit because it it is the best. Uh, thing they can do to get off this ship before the Vogon find them. Ford is able to pull off a pipe leading to outside the spaceship. That way Ford can put his hitchhiking thumb out and signal another ship to pick them up. How come they didn't die? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Arthur frantically asks How come they didn't die? (laughs) Arthur frantically asks Ford what a a Vogon is and Ford tells him to just ask the guide by speaking to it. Through the guide, we learn that Vogons are one of the most unpleasant races in the galaxy. Not evil, but bad-tempered, bureaucratic, officious, and callous. They wouldn't lift a finger to save their own grandmothers from the ravenous bug-bladder beast of Troll without orders signed in triplicate, sent in, sent back, cured, lost, found, subject to public inquiry, lost again, and finally buried in soft peat for three months and recycled as firelighters. Warning, on no account should you allow a Vogon to read poetry to you. Ford cuts us out of the tablet slash guide to tell us that Vogons are basically stupid and their only function is to just run things. So 
What do you think of the Vogon? I think they're very ugly looking. I like the way they look, though. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, it's really nice to see, like, puppetry and, like, practical effects, you know? Yeah. They look really cool. Oh, yeah. They, and I they love how, cool. like, they're different, too. Like, they're the same but different, you know? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like, we can really tell each of the Vogons, like, personalities. Yeah. Yeah. We then cut to a Vogon running the security cameras, finally catching Ford and Arthur. I just feel like it took them forever to be noticed. Yeah. Also, I feel like Arthur and Ford kind of dally a lot. Dilly dally dilly yeah, dally. Yeah, doesn't... And they kind of just stand around doing, like, nothing. Yeah. Does that make sense? Definitely. Okay, cool. And I'm not sure if that's just a British humor thing, but, like... <laughs> so we then come back to Ford and Arthur as Ford continues to find them both a new spaceship. Ford tells Arthur that the Vogon are in a killing mood since they've already blown up a planet that day, so it's really important that they get a ride. Suddenly, a Vogon's voice comes on into the uh, speaker. We have no idea what is being said, and we can really tell it hurts Arthur's ears. So Ford gives him a slug-like thing to put in Arthur's ear, and when I tell you this scene used to gross me out as a kid, like, I would look away. Oh, you didn't like the earworm? Dude, I did not. It looks like a... It looks like a rubber ducky, but like, like the consistency of it looks like rubber. But I mean, but it looks like that thing from Sing, not Sing that from Trolls. That Trolls. That thing that that uh, James Corden character holds. That's what it looks like. <laughs> uh, Mr. Dinkles. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. So Arthur, as well as us, can now finally understand what the Vogon is saying on the speaker and it's telling the crew that they have hitchhikers. Arthur having a hard time still readjusting his ears as something is in it. Mm. Ford tells them that the fish that they put on his ears is translating for him. Arthur is able to get it out before Ford forces it back into Arthur's ear as the guide tells us what this fish is and what it really does. The babblefish is a small, yellow, leech-like, and probably the oddest thing in the universe. It feeds on brainwave energy, absorbing unconscious frequencies, and excreting a matrix of consciousness frequencies to the speech center of the brain. The practical upshot of which, as if you stick one in your ear, you instantly understand anything said to you in any lang- in language. So what do you think of this babblefish? It works. It works. I'll take it. Why not? I think that's really gross. <laughs> So, the Babblefish translator that Ford puts in Arthur's ears inspired the Babblefish webpage, which provides translations to and from different languages. The name Babblefish, in turn, was named after the Tower of Babel in the Bible's Book of Genesis. And according to the DVD commentary, the animators who created the animated guide entries would occasionally sneak in hidden jokes with their animations that were deemed too inappropriate for a family movie and had to be removed. So, uh, (laughs) one of these jokes, actually, which... (sighs) Which wasn't removed. <laughs> one of these jokes, which wasn't removed in, in one of the animations, is uh, the one actually explaining the babblefish mm-hmm. and how a farmer becomes repulsed when he learns that a cow is somewhat aroused by being milked. <laughs> which I thought was funny. Like, mi- ooh, milk. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think the babblefish is kind of hella convenient. Yeah. I think as a kid, I was like, okay, sure, but like. Sure. I know it's in the book, but still. So the Vogons catch up to Arthur and Ford and arrest them and take them to the Council of Vogon as we watch the leader, Vogon. What did you call him? Call oh, what? 
Uh, what did you say? Yelts? Yelts. 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 It's like crab fishing, which is like pulling a crab out of a tank and then snatching it, which is like so sad. I know. It is what it is. As he's being told, the hitchhikers. So both Arthur and Ford are tied up against these slabs-like thing. Like, think of Han Solo before he gets frozen in carbonite. Like, that's what they're on. So Vogon yells, decides to deal with the hitchhikers by reading them poetry against their will. Ford begs it to stop while Arthur is heavily confused about this action, as the guide tells us that Vogon poetry is widely accepted as the third worst in the universe. The second worst is that of Asgoth of Kira. During a resuscitation by their poet master, Gonthros, the fat flatulent of his poem, Ode to a Small Lump of Green Putty, I found in my armpit one midsummer morning. Four of his audience died of internal hemorrhaging. The president of the Mid-Galactic Arts Noveling Council survived by gnawing one of his own legs off. The absolute worst poetry was by Paul and Milestone Jennings of Sussex. Luckily, it was destroyed when Earth was. So what do you think about that? I thought it was funny. Also, what's the worst poem you've ever read? Mm, I don't know. I, don't, I haven't read much poetry. Boo. But if anything, I'm definitely going to say any of uh, Lana Del Rey songs and then cut to the family guy cut away fuck you you know which one I'm talking about I do know yeah. he's just saying that cause I like Lana Del Rey oh wow this is Lana Del Rey but my poem that I just I don't I mean sure it's good I guess but like it made me feel icky the moment I read it but it's about how this guy wants to fuck Emily Dickinson and, like, he's, like, referencing, like, taking off her clothes, like, referencing her, like, poems and stuff. And I'm like, ew. Ick. It's giving ick. I hate it. Okay. <laughs> Are you mad? No, I think that's gross. Exactly! So we see that during the poem reading, Ford is miserable and trying to hang in for dear life until the poem ends. And Arthur is just, okay, is that it? Is that it? When Vogon uh, yells his finished reciting, he turns to Arthur and gives him a choice. Arthur could choose to die in the vacuum of space, or Arthur can tell Yeltz what he thought of Yeltz's poem. Arthur tells Yeltz that he actually liked the poem. Ford tells Arthur it's a good time to run, as Arthur tells Yeltz that he could not really understand what was being said, but the imagery was effective. And I said me in creative writing. Me in creative writing. Yeltz likes what Arthur is is saying and tells him to continue with his controversial opinions. Arthur tells him that the poem has a really interesting rhythmic device which seemed to counterpoint the underlying metaphor of the humanity of before and before he can finish Ford corrects Arthur saying Vogans are not humans that they don't have humanity they have Voganity. I feel like this scene and this joke are going on for way too long. You know what I mean? Definitely. Like, I feel like they've been here forever. Come on. I don't know. I just feel like the jokes are starting to get stale. I'm not ready. Yeah, the jokes... Like, I'm ready for them to move on from yeah, this, you know? Yeah, it kind of stopped being funny after a while. And I'm like, all right, whatever, next. So Vogon Yeltz asks Arthur that the reason that Yeltz writes poetry is because he's a really nice guy underneath. And I thought, don't psychoanalyze me, bitch. Mm-hmm. Okay. So after some brief consideration, Vogon Yeltz decides to throw both Ford and Arthur off the ship. So, Arthur and Ford get thrown into a room, which I assume is a chamber to throw them out. 
Ford tells himself not to panic while Arthur asks if they're gonna die. Ford says yeah and helps Arthur to stop sweating with his towel. The chamber that they are in starts making noise and Ford grabs Arthur's shoulder like in a final goodbye. The chamber that they're in starts making noise and Ford grabs Arthur's shoulder like in a final goodbye manner and when we think that they're about to get sucked out the floor beneath falls opening beneath falls open swallowing them down the guide tells us that space says the introduction to the hitchhiker's guide is big really big you just won't believe how vastly hugely mind-boggling big it is it also says that if you hold a lung full of air, you can survive in the total vacuum of space for about 30 seconds. But with space being really big and all, the chances of being picked up within that time are 2 to the power of 2,079,460,347 to 1 against. By a staggering coincidence, it is also the phone number of Islingston Flat where Arthur went to a fancy dress party and met a very nice young woman whom he totally, totally blew it with. Totally. <laughs> so while this narration is going on, we see a cell phone floating away as well as two tiny figures in space that are both Arthur and Ford. We see a big couch, then a chicken, and then finally a spaceship, the shape of an eyeball, picks them up. The guide continues to tell us that through the planet Earth, the Illingston flat and telephone have all now been demolished. Ford and Arthur were in fact rescued. Okay. So Ford and Arthur are on the ship, but they are now love seats, which reminds me that we need a new couch. So if anyone's listening would like to help, we're joking. We, we we're need joking. a new couch. We need a new couch. <laughs> we're recording on the floor. It's broken a little because we got it at clearance. It is what it is. So both Sofa Ford and Arthur start freaking out over the fact that they are couches. Finally return to normal. We see Trisha is back and is on the ship. Small world for Arthur. Like, can you imagine that the girl you like being forced to like you back because you two are the last humans in the universe? Happened. It's the ultimate forced proximity. Mm-hmm. Trisha watches the galactic news and finds that they are covering a story about their ship that they're on. And it is called the Starship Heart of Gold. And we learned that the ship was actually stolen by the galactic president, Xiphoid Beeblebrox, the mm-hmm. same guy that came up to Trisha at the party asking if she would like to see his spaceship. We see the president was blessing the maiden voyage, but then announces that he is kidnapping himself and takes the ship and leaves. As the news continues to tell us that the president, Beeblebrox, is stupid, we see that he is actually watching the TV while being a whole man child. And I remember that even as a kid, I thought this guy was so fucking annoying. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, my fucking God. We learned that Beeblebrox has a campaign enemy, and Trisha tells him to put his ego to the side since they have a problem. Beeblebrox tells her that if it's more important than his ego, he wants it caught and shot right now. Trisha turns off the news and tells him that they have picked up hitchhikers while they are using the probability drive. They pick them up from sector ZZ9, plural Z Alpha. So fun fact that I learned, the relevance of sector ZZ9 is the fact that in the UK, if a person has NFA, no fixed abode, no place to where to live, uh-huh. then the postcode is recorded as ZZ993BZ. Thus, Trisha and Arthur come from sector ZZ9, and thanks to the Vogon, they are both NFA. NFA. Uh, so yeah. So yeah. Cool. <laughs> So Trisha concludes that the hitchhikers must be from Earth, since that's the same sector that Beeblebrox had picked her up. 
So Beeblebrox puts on his charm, if you want to call it that, to tell Trisha they need to basically get rid of the hitchhikers, that she should not allow them in in the first place. But she didn't, by the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, as he dances and spins her around and tells her that she drives him crazy, she smiles at this and tells Beeblebrox not to go after the hitchhikers and that she'll just send them Marvin. And so she calls for him, Marvin, and we get this like giant like robot with a huge round head played <laughs> played with the voice of Alan Rickman. Uh, Marvin tells her that uh, he's feeling depressed, and Trisha tells him that she has a mission that could take his mind off of it, and he tells her that it is doubtful because he has a really large mind. <clears throat> Trisha tells Marvin that he has to pick up the stowaways and bring them back here. Marvin agrees, but tells her that he won't enjoy doing it. We then cut back to see what the Vogon are up to. We see the, the Vogon uh, yelps, or, or uh, yettles, I don't know, just got informed that not only the hitchhikers su- survived, but are also on the ship with the galactic president, Beeblebrox. The captain start, begins chasing after Arthur and Ford, asking Yeltz for permission to go into hyperspace. Yeltz asks for the vice president and then grants the captain approval for hyperspace. So... <laughs> <laughs> if that sounds confusing, it's basically they have to go through a lot of like bureaucracy just to do the minor and things. Paperwork. I know. So next we cut back to the ship as Arthur and Ford make their way through the ship. The door makes a, si- a sighing sound, which freaks Arthur out as they walk further. The door's kind of just like, ah. <laughs> uh, as it as freaks Arthur out as they walk further, and they run into Marvin holding a gun to them and tells him the reason that the door sighs because it's supposed to make people feel calmed and happy. Marvin guides them back to the bridge and tells Arthur, as well as us, that Marvin is depressed because he was built to understand genuine human emotion and be empathetic toward human needs and that he is a prototype of this. We cut to Trisha watching the cameras as Marvin brings Arthur and Ford to the bridge. Trisha recognizes Arthur and hurries to get dressed to look more presentable. Because she's been in her underwear this entire time, guys. In her underwear. So, Beeble Brox meets Arthur and Ford and he recognizes Ford and their old-time pals. Ford introduces Beeble Brox to Arthur. We learn that not only are Beeble Brox and Ford friends, but cousins, and they share three of the same mothers. It's giving polygamy. I don't get how that works. It's previously on Sister Wives. Oh my god. Arthur says that he actually has already met Beeblebrox, but Beeblebrox does not recognize Arthur. Arthur tells Ford that this is the same guy that asked Trisha if she wanted, if she would like to see a spaceship. And Ford looks around and is like, well, it's a nice ship. He's not wrong. It's a it nice is, ship. It is a nice ship. <laughs> so Trisha comes up and says hi, and Arthur is hella surprised to see her. Before they can start talking, Beeblebrox pulls Trisha away to introduce her to Ford. She's like, wow, cool, and then goes to talk to Arthur again. Arthur points out that Beeblebrox calls her Trillian, and she tells him that she shortened her name to sound more spacey, and Arthur cracks a joke that he'll probably change his too, which makes Trisha laugh. So Trillian slash Trisha asks Arthur how he got here, and he tells her that he just stuck his thumb out, and she asked if his PJs, and Arthur tells her he was in a bit of a hurry. Trillian asks how did he know she was here, and Arthur tells her to not flatter herself because he has a kooky spaceman too that he follows around. So what do you think of Trisha slash Trillian? I don't like her. She's kind of just there for me. Yeah. It's, it's very anti-Zoe Deschanel. 
Go on. Julian apologizes for walking away from Arthur at the party, and she swears she was going to call him when she got back. Arthur, a little butthurt, tells her, well, there's no calling anyone, and Trillian looks a little hurt by this comment, but that's when Arthur realizes that she has no idea that Earth is destroyed. Beeblebrox interrupts this conversation, and Arthur kind of loses it for a sec by telling Beeblebrox that he and Trillian are trying to talk, which causes Beeblebrox to show his little head underneath his little one. He has like a head on like the front of his neck. If that makes sense. And it, when he leans his head back, that head, like, takes over. Well, we'll understand why later, but it's really scary. Yeah. And this scared me as a kid. I was like, oh my god. So I was like, ah! You have ah, ah. So Arthur and Beelobox fight for, like, a second, but it's like, like the little hand fighting. And while that's happening, the Vogon are able to catch up to them. So smart Beelobox comes out again and wants to fight the Vogon, while both Trillian and Ford try to find something that will help the escape as Arthur watches helplessly. So while Beeblebrox fights with himself, Trillian takes it upon herself to ask the ship's computer, Eddie, for help. And we learn that Vogon have come with a hundred battle destroyers, which seems like a bit of an overkill, if you ask me. Literally. Like, why would you need that many ships for one ship, you know? It is what it is. So they get a message from the Vogon destroyer fleet telling him that from the VB Questelar-Ron talk, She's speaking to the kidnapper of the president that they should surrender the stolen vessel or they will take action as defined and permitted by Section 1-8 of the Galactic Interstellar Space Bylaws. The VP gets annoyed with all the pro- protocol talk because she's with the uh, Vogon and asks Beeblebrox to come back. And Beeblebrox, the little one underneath his head, tells Eddie to jump into hyperspace, which they do. So we see in the Vogon double deliberation room, they ask each other if they have permission to jump into hyperspace. Yeltsin then asks for the request to pursue fugitive forms. In the next scene, we see that Ford and Beeblebrox are talking and drinking, and Beeblebrox asks Ford if he is alone for the ride, or if he's just dropping Ford off somewhere. And Ford asks where where is Beeblebrox going, and he tells him that Ford will want to come to the next place that they are headed. While Arthur still recovers from hyperspace, he asks Trillian if they have any tea, and she says, of course, and shows him to the kitchen. Very British. The guide then tells us that the best drink in existence is the pan-galactic gargle blaster, the effect of which is like having your brain smashed by a slice of lemon wrapped around a large gold brick. As the guide tells us this, we see both Ford and Beeblebrox take this drink and just start screaming as Arthur makes his way toward the kitchen. Beeblebrox catches up to Arthur and tells him he is sorry about his planet being destroyed, but it's best not to tell Trillian because if he does, Beeblebrox threatens to pull Arthur's spleen out. That's scary. Mm-hmm. Also, would you try that drink, Christian? No. That's scary. So Beeblebrox goes back to join Ford, and Ford asks what is going on with the two-head thing, and Beeblebrox explains that he cannot be president with his whole brain. What do you think of that? Uh, that's a lot of information all at one time. Yeah. The fact that he had to, like, cut half his brain. Yeah. Also weird. I just think that's crazy. So Ford is like, so you just cut that out? And Beeblebrox explained that parts of his personality were not presidential. 
We then cut to the kitchen as we see Arthur's tea being made into a martini glass and smoking. Arthur tries it and gags, which makes Julian laugh, and she is like, maybe I should have told you it resembles tea. Arthur then asks if the two-headed thing is what really gets her excited, and Trillian tells him maybe it's the spaceship. Arthur then rudely asks what other two-headed things does he have, and Trillian calmly tells him to be nice to her. Dude, Arthur's being a dick, bro. He is so fucking mean to her. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't understand why he's so pissed at her. Like, I mean, like, they're still basically strangers, you know? Yeah. And I really hate that he's acting like she owes him something just because she didn't leave at the party with him. No, I get it. But also, she kind of like... She kind of like what? Ditched him. She doesn't know this guy! Who who are we talking about? We're talking about Trisha slash Trillian. Oh, okay. I don't know. I feel like... I feel like everyone is kind of like disregarding Arthur's feelings, though. How? He's acting like she owes him something. No, not even that. I just mean like... He doesn't. He didn't ask to be here. Yeah. You know. You know what I mean. Yeah, but why? But he's mad at her because she ditched him at a party. Still mean. How is that mean? Is she that doesn't mean? know this guy. I mean, yeah. Okay. What? What if I had met you at a party and we have a conversation? You're like, oh hey, I'll be right back, and I just never see you again. So we probably weren't going to see each other again after that night anyway. Well, I thought you were cool. <laughs> So Trillian, trying to change the mood, shows Arthur all the cool stuff that they have in the kitchen, such as a machine that detects what food that you're craving and makes it. And I said I would kill a thousand young weeks to have fun. Literally. <laughs> okay, Anakin. Trillian then pulls out a little butter knife that resembles a lightsaber, and it toasts bread as you slice it. Trillian tells Arthur that they are literally on a spaceship in space, and that all she wanted was to get away from it all. Arthur reminds her that she told him that the getaway was Madagascar, and tells her that he thinks that she put him to some sort of test and that he failed. Trillian asks him if this hurts, and he honestly tells her that it doesn't feel great, and Trillian says she needs his chin, and goes to look for aspirin. Mm-hmm. I really hate this whole interaction between these two. Yeah. Because she owes him nothing. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I don't know. It's kind of just like, he didn't ask to be here. So she, why is he she's, taking it on her? She's kind of just like... So why is he taking it on well, her? Well, he did tell her about Earth, right? Uh-uh. Oh. She finds out because she gets arrested. That's how she finds out. Oh, yeah. He didn't tell her. Um, so he's mad. He's mad, like... I think he's just had a rough day, all things considered. He doesn't need to blame her for it. <laughs> I think he's just mad because she's oblivious. I think that's it. I don't know. Who's to say? I don't know. I just don't like them together. I think Trisha could do better. Okay. So, while Trillian looks for an aspirin, two mice come out running out of the bag. Ew. Ew. While Arthur tries to talk to her about Earth, but Box calls for them to come back to the bridge to find out what toy... Box has found to play with. Mm-hmm. Also, I was thinking with the two mice, I was thinking kind of like Noah's Ark, two animals. Or do, you, do you see where I'm yeah, like? Yeah. I, I think that's cute. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So Box holds up this small cube thing and tells him that he saw what he is, what he saw, what they're about to see. This was the reason he had to cut his brain in half. And we learned that the cube holds a video for the, uh, Margrethean Public Archive. As the guide tells us, 
that millions and millions of years ago, a race of hyper-intelligent, pan-dimensional beings got fed up with bickering about the meaning of life. Mm -hmm. So they commissioned two of their brightest and best to design and build a stupendous supercomputer to calculate the answer to life, the answer and everything. The answer, the universe and everything. Of course. So we cut to a flashback and we see that the two intelligent beings present themselves as little girls, as the supercomputer, known as Deep Thought, just looks like a giant Karen from Spongebob. Kind of look, looks like a, like, yeah, it is Karen from Spongebob. <laughs> because that's just what I always thought when I, even when I was a kid. Yeah. So the two girls ask, what is the meaning to life, as everyone in the audience waits patiently for the answer. So the computer tells the girls that she will have to think about it and to come back seven and a half million years for the answer. So the girls do come back, this time with a very eccentric crowd who have banners and shit, and they are just screaming and having obviously been preparing for this for a very long time. They ask the computer what the answer is, and she honestly tells them that the answer to the meaning of life is 42. Mm-hmm. And if you pause at this exact moment in the film, and it's it's the four it's a forty two minute mark. So I'm glad you bring that up mm-hmm. because, actually, uh-huh. <clears throat> I found this while researching. Okay. How I found that I was just at that moment I paused it and I was like, oh my god, because I thought it'd be really funny. Mm-hmm. So. The number 42 uh-huh. in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, all these other books, uh, was calculated by an enormous supercomputer named Deep Thought over a period of seven and a half million years. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, no one knows what the question is. Thus, to calculate the ultimate question, a special computer the size of a small planet was built from organic components and named Earth. The ultimate question, what do you get when you multiply six by nine, was found by Arthur Dent and Ford Prefect in the second book of the series. And although 6 times 9 is 54, Mm -hmm. I don't really get it. Um, Maybe they messed up because in the film he says 6 times 7. That is true. So the fact that Adams named the episode of the radio play fits the same archaic title. I'm not reading all that. Anyway, so the fourth book in the series, the novel So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, Mm -hmm. contains 42 chapters. According to the novel Mostly Harmless, Mm -hmm. 42 is the street address of... uh, Stavro Mula Beta mm-hmm. in 1994, Adams created the 42 puzzle, based, uh, a game based on the number 42. Uh, but yeah, I know he, he includes 42 a lot in, mm-hmm. through his books. Maybe that's his favorite number. Maybe it is. Who's to say? Do you want to go or do you want me to continue? You can keep going. So everyone is extremely disappointed by this answer, and the computer tells the girls it's because they didn't really have a question. The girls defend themselves by saying it was the ultimate question to everything. The computer tells them that they must find the question to understand the answer. The girls then ask for the question, but the computer cannot give it to them, but know someone who can. The computer says that she will build this supercomputer that will give them this question, and it will be called, but then the video cuts. And we never find out what the computer is called. <laughs> so we learned that Beeble Brox is searching for the ultimate question and asks if both Ford and Arthur to join him on his journey to find the ultimate question. They all agree, and Beeble Brox presses the probability button, which turns the ship into a bell, cherries, and orange, and then disappears, as the guides explains to us that 
The infinite probability drive is a wonderful new method of crossing interstellar distances in a few seconds. Without all that tedious mucking about in hyperspace, as the probability drive reaches infinite improbability, it passes through every convincible point in every conceivable universe almost simultaneously. So you're never sure where you'll end up or even what species you'll be when you get there. It's therefore important to dress accordingly. The drive was invented following the research into finite improbability, which was often used to break the ice at parties by making all the molecules of the hostess's undergarments leap one foot to the left in accordance with the theory of indeterminacy. Many respectable physicists said they wouldn't stand for that sort of thing, partly because it debased science, but mostly because they didn't get invited to those sorts of parties. So what did you think of all that? I thought that was funny. I thought that was wild. Just a little funny. What do you think of the science behind all of that? I'm not I'm not reading all that, Chief. Like, oh my goodness. Like, that's so crazy. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so, the next scene, we see the spaceship turn into a piece of log, a rubber duck, a weight, and then a ball of yarn. We see that everyone inside is now made up of yarn. And this scene is probably my favorite, even as a kid, because it just looks so fun. And I tried to find out how long this took to, like, make, but I couldn't find anything. But people make replicas of these and sell them, and people have, like, given them out, and the yarn and the yarn dolls are just part of the hitchhiker's memorabilia. Yeah. I just thought that was really cute. It is cute. So, as yarn people, Bebo Brox asks if that, that will happen every time he presses that button, and Trillian tells him yes. Arthur gets sick and pukes up yarn, and everyone returns back to being human. As Arthur still throws up yarn, Trillian tells everyone the status of the ship has reached normality and that they have reached their destination on uh, Magrathia. Trillian looks looks out and says there's no way that Magrathia and asks Eddie, the computer, where they really are. Eddie announces that they have actually reached the planet Voltvoid 6, which is where Bebobrox's enemy, Hama, lives. Bebobrox then screams that, uh, Margarethia can wait because he currently has a score to settle. We then get the guide again as he tells us that in the beginning, the universe was created. This made a lot of people very angry. It is widely regarded as a bad move. Many races believed it was created by some sort of god. Though the Jetchvartid people of Viltvoldal 6 firmly believe that the entire universe was sneezed out of the nose of a being called the Great Green Arclesiger. The Jetchvartid <laughs> the Jatravartids, who live in fear of the time they call the coming of the Great White Handkerchief, were small blue creatures with more than 50 arms each. They were unique, being the only race in history to have invented the aerosol deodorant before the wheel. <laughs> I forgot that. that was, it's just so stupid. Yeah, I know, bro. Like, you can do nothing but laugh. It's just so stupid. Anyway. We see, so we see our gang land and make their way on the Stark planet towards a party that Hama is throwing. Beeblebrox is able to get the attention he craves from his adoring political fans. And uh, as Beeblebrox goes ahead of the group, Ford announces that he needs a drink and asks if he has been here before because the place feels familiar but strange at the same time. When Ford makes his way inside, everyone calls him by his nick- nickname and he excitedly tells his friends he has been here before. Chilean and Arthur then follow Beeblebrox and hope that he is not getting himself into trouble. So the three were walk in on a church service going on. After everyone finishes singing the hymn, Beeblebrox slow claps as everyone sits down. 
Bebel Brock says hi to Hubba, who's preaching, but rolls his eyes when he sees Bebel Brock's. Bebel Brock's in the group are asked to sit down and join the service, so Hubba starts praying to the handkerchief, asking it to wipe them clean. Religion really be like that, huh? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Instead of saying amen in this church, by the way, they all sneeze at the same time. So after the service is over, Beeble Rocks goes to talk to Hama in his own dining room, where he's having dinner. Hama asks Beeble Rocks how everything is going and why Beeble is here in the first place. So Hama and Beeble Rocks go back and forth a couple of times, and Beeble tells them that during Hama's campaign slander against Beeble, uh, ad, while Hama is listening, he takes his glasses off and reveals he has no eyes, as well as a torso and legs, because he starts to get up from his chair, but is being carried by a bunch of golden bug-like legs. Ew. Gross. Hama tells Beeble Brox that the election is long over, that Beeble Brox won because charm always wins and not brains. Arthur t- st- starts talking and making things worse as Hama asks why Beeble Brox is here in the first place. Hama's followers start beating uh, on Beeble Brox, and Trillian steps in to let Hama knows they are not sure why they are even here in the first place, because they were trying to get to Magrathia and their ship brought them here instead. Hama is like, wow, very interesting, as he rips the nose off of one of his followers and presses a code to unlock a drawer of stuff that Hama calls stuff from his life before, and holds up an infinite probability drive, which Beeblebrox wants. Hama tells him that they don't get something for nothing and that they must bring Hama something in return for the drive. Beeblebrox asks Hama what he wants, and Hama tells him that he wants a gun decided by the greatest computer ever vented. But the only way to find the gun is to go to uh, Margarethia. Bebo Brox offers to get the gun if Hama gives them the drive, and Hama asks, What will you give me so I can make sure you come back with what I want? Bebo Brox tells Hama that he has his word as Galactic President, and Hama's like, Yeah, no, I need a hostage. Both Arthur and Trillian look at each other nervously as Hama asks what Bebo Brox treasures the most. So Hama starts whistling to get little Bebo Brox out and hold him as hostage. We then see through the shadow that Hama cuts open Bieberbrox and takes his uh, smarter half of himself. We see that Bieberbrox's second head is stuck on a car dash hula girl's body as Arthur and Trillia take the rest of his body back. Ooh. I know, that was so scary, bro. Arthur, being pissed that this is happening, calls Bieberbrox an asshole, but Trillian comes swinging when she tells him he is a pussy-ass sellout for trying to say that they were there to worship and were not with Bieberbrox. When Arthur thinks they should find Ford, we see that Vogon have caught up with them once again and are searching the grounds. The Vogons stop right in front of the group and they start firing their blasters trying to protect the president. The VP, who's watching from the ship with the Yelts, tells them to stop firing or they will kill the president as we watch Arthur and Trillian take cover as Bebo Brox is just standing there finger-gunning back at the Vogons. Ford finally catches up and takes Beeblebrox back where Arthur and Trillian are hiding. Arthur asks Ford where the hell was he, and Ford calmly explains that he is doing field research and that it's a real bummer that the Vogard found them so quickly. Trillian then says she has an idea, and Arthur suggests that they just push Beeblebrox out there because that's who they want, which vis- visibly annoys Trillian. Arthur begs her to not go out there, but she does anyway, and grabs Beeblebrox in a can and tells the Vogons to stop shooting or she will kill him. Both the VP and Yeltsin see right through this, as Trillian makes a path back to their ship. Ship. Yeltsin tells his men to take her in, which they do, as Trillian is taken, she screams for Arthur to save her. 
and he tries at first, but the Volgard shoot them all back into the ship. Box is hell excited that they got the coordinates, tries to leave, but Arthur tells them that they have to go save Trillian. Arthur tells Eddie to follow the ships that Trillian is on, but Eddie says he can't because his guidance system has been deactivated by two mice we saw earlier that left the backpack. Not the mice. So Ford asks Eddie if there's another way for them to follow those ships, and Eddie suggests an escape pod. So we see the group leaving in a pod as they try to figure out how to fly it. Arthur gets the hang of it and is able to take the group to the planet Vogsphere. We see our ship, our group's ship has a crash landing, and Box thinks that they're at uh, Margrethia, and is really excited about it, and Ford getting tired of it of his antics puts a thinking cap on Box's head and puts a lumen on top and just kind of squeezes to give him more zest. Zesty, yeah. So next scene we see what happened to Trillian as she can be led by the Vogons in chains. We cut back to the guys as they walk toward the Vogon buildings. Ford asks Arthur if he has a plan. Arthur says he's got a small idea then he gets slapped in the face by something in the ground but disappears like it was never there. Arthur, thinking that it was all in his head, says again that he's got a plan, only to get slapped again, and tells the group to stop moving so he can prove that he's getting smacked in the face. Everyone freezes, and nothing happens, so Ford is like, okay, maybe I have an idea. Then Ford is the one that gets smacked in the face, proving Arthur's point that he is not crazy. Forrest asks what it is, what is that, and Arthur is about to tell the group that he thinks it's what it is, but before he says it out loud, he asks Beeblebrox what he thinks it is, and as soon as Beeblebrox expresses what he thinks, he gets smacked in the face. Marvin, who is walking alongside them, tells them that he knows what it is. Ford then says he has an idea, and the thing comes up to slap him again, but Ford is able to catch it with his towel and rip it from the ground. The guys see it coming from the ground because the remaining half of what was pulling up goes back into the ground as the guys stomp over it in the hole that it made. Ford concludes that nobody should think, no idea, no theories, nothing. They all stand in silence until they all get smacked, which pitches, pisses Arthur off because Trillian is inside. This is only stopping them and starts running toward the building. The group follows, but they still get smacked until they reach the mouth of Vogon City. So Arthur watches as he hatches the plan to get inside, but needs Marvin's arm. So the group comes in the building screaming, only to find the room is completely empty and only has one Vogon working at the window. So the next scene, we see Trillian getting processed and the Vogon trying to find her home planet, but can't find Earth. The Vogon types up Earth, but finds there's no record of Earth. Trillian tells the Vogon to try Sector ZZ9. We see that VP and Yeltz are watching Trillian get booked, and VP concludes that Trillian is lying. So the Vogon finds Earth and tells her that it's been destroyed, and asks Trillian if she has a second home planet. And like, I get the joke here, but like, why can't they just put Earth as her home planet? I don't get it. <laughs> Shocked by this, Trillian asks the Vogon who would uh, approve this. We then cut back to the guys with Beeblebrox right in the middle as they try to figure out which building Trillian is in. They walk in, and it's a long line of people waiting to be serviced, as the Vogon explains what forms need to be filled out. That reminds me of the tax commission, not gonna lie. Arthur says to leave this to him because he's British, and I know how to queue. Did you read that? <laughs> Did you read that? They know how to queue. My thought after that. You know, you know how it's British, because they know how to queue. The dot, Christian, what I said after that. The dot? 
confused. Okay, so the WW11 flashbacks. What do you mean WW11? World War II flashbacks. Why didn't you just put the I instead of the ones? Because it was supposed to be an inside joke between us. I wasn't supposed to read that loud. I thought I'd make you laugh. <laughs> but I was confused. Okay, whatever. Because, you know, they're waiting in the queues for that long hour to see her. Yeah. You just wrote World War II weirdly. <sighs> okay, never mind. Arthur asks Beemore Rock, since he's the president, can he do something? And Ford says that the president doesn't actually have any power, and that their job is to draw attention away from the real power. Which, hmm. <laughs> Rock takes offense to this, and uh, removes the thinking cap and greets people online as they push their way to the front. So Arthur makes his way to the window and asks about the release of Trillian. The Vogon asks for a prisoner release form, which Arthur just stands there, mouth open, not knowing what to say next. We cut back to Trillian and her booking, and she tells the Vogon that she does not believe her, and the Vogon shows her the order signed by Beeblebrox for Earth to be destroyed and make way for a galactic bypass. So the Vogon tells her that, according to the system, the punishment for presidential kidnapping is to be fed to the ravenous blood bladder beast of Troll. We then watch as Trillian gets led to a room where they have this gigantic box that keeps moving around as Trillian screams that this is a mistake. Next, we cut to the gang of guys as they fill out the prison release forms through the guide using comically large pens with chains attached to them. The guide then tells us what to do if you find yourself stuck with no hope of rescue. Consider how lucky you are that life has been good to you so far. Alternatively, if life hasn't been good to you so far, which given your current circumstances seems more likely, consider how lucky you are that it won't be troubling you much longer. So, as this narration is going on, we see Trillian get tied to chains as she's being lifted up over the box to be fed to the thing from Tall as the VP smiles to herself and watches. I think the VP is a hater. Mm-hmm. He's a bit of a hater. <laughs> so, in the next scene, we see that Arthur takes his finished release forms to the window. The Vogon then tells them that Trillian is not eligible for release at this time since she kidnapped the president. Arthur tells the Vogon that the president is fine and is with them. Arthur tells the Vogon that the president says that what happened was a horrible misunderstanding and that Trillian is innocent. Arthur tells the Vogon that Beeblebrox orders the release of Trillian. The Vogon tells him that this isn't a presidential prisoner release form, so Ford tells Arthur to fill out the form while he holds their spot in line. Next, we see Trillian slowly get lowered into the cage. At the same time, we see Arthur hurriedly fill out the form. So Arthur takes the form to the window and finally gets approved for Trillian's release. So Yeltz gets the news that Trillian is free, and the VP sees that Beeblebrox is here in the building, and agrees that they don't need Trillian anymore. So the next scene, we see the guys wait patiently for Trillian. When she is released, they literally kick her out and she lands on the floor. Arthur is super happy to see her, but Trillian is pissed and walks right past Arthur to talk to Beeblebrox. She tells him that he signed away her home to be destroyed, which is new news to Arthur. Trillian slaps Beeblebrox and calls him an idiot as Beeblebrox claims that he was framed. As they go to walk out, Trillian stops Arthur and asks why he didn't tell her about Earth being destroyed. And Arthur tells her that Beeblebrox threatened him, and Trillian, tired of Arthur, tells him to get a back quote before walking away. I don't understand why he didn't say he tried, you know? Yeah, like, I don't get that. I'm like... Because he did try. Yeah. (laughs) Arthur tells her that all that this, her rescue, was his idea as they make it back to the pod as they take off back to the ship. 
Yeltsin and the VP watch this, and Yeltsin, feeling tired of this chase, decides that he will pursue Weevilbrox himself and, ready, and to ready his ships. The VP is glad to hear this news with this gigantic whistle that signals lunch sounds off and everybody scatters. VP confused as to why they would do this and not just take off now before the president and the group get away. I'm completely on the Vogan side here. Do not fuck with my one hour lunch. <laughs> so the guide tells us that the Encyclopedia Galactica in its chapters on love states that it is far too complicated to define. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has this to say on love. Avoid, if all at possible. Unfortunately, Arthur Dent has never read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm. So the gang is back on their ship, and Trillian takes a shower, which is... Like, what is up with Zoe Deschanel taking showers? Yeah, like an elf, right? Yeah, it's so fucking gross. Like, stop it! Stop making her do these things. So Arthur walks in on her, and he's like, Oh, I'm sorry. And he's like, he's not sorry. And she's like, no, it's cool. And Arthur then tells her that he's, like, super sorry for not telling her about Earth and that he understands that she's really angry with him and that if he said yes to Madagascar, then none of them would be here. And this apology is so full of it. He's like, yeah, so you should be thanking me because, like, if I said yes, then we'd both be dead. Like, Arthur is such a prick, dude. Dude. Like, he completely misses the point. Like, yeah, they'd be dead, but they haven't spent that last human moment doing something spontaneous and didn't die at work or, like, hating themselves, you know? They would have died happy. Yeah. And I'm just like... And, like, even in the end, it wouldn't have even mattered anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. <sighs> so, we see that Ford is taking care of Beeble Rocks as he is clearly out of it again, and Ford goes to find another limit to use. We see the two mice from earlier as they hit the probability drive. We see the ship turn into different kinds of flowers before returning to normal. Eddie, the computer, tells the crew that they are 300 miles out of orbit from, uh, Margarethia. Everyone watches out the window how beautiful the planet is, and Beaver Brox is hella excited that they made it, and Marvin is like, it's even more gross up close, and they get an automatic message from the people of Margarethia. The message says, the Council of Margarethia thanks you for your visit, but regrets that the entire planet is temporarily closed. Ford asks how a planet can be closed, and Beaver Brox tells Eddie to take down the planet, to take them down to the planet. The planet's system tracks the ship and the message the crew that they sent nuclear missiles after them. So Eddie takes action by avoiding the missiles, so Arthur asks Eddie for someone to do something, so Eddie gives full control back to them. Babelbrox is able to stir, but badly, so Arthur goes to press the probability button. Chilean tells him there's no way of telling what will happen since they're not back to normal levels yet. Arthur goes to press the button, but Babelbrox goes to stop him saying that they are so close to getting what they came here for, and who knows? where they will go if they hit that button now. See that the missiles are getting closer, Arthur presses the probability button. So everyone comes up unharmed, the ship still intact, and we learn that the probability button turned the missiles into a bowl of petunias and, and a, a whale. A surprised looking whale. Trillian <laughs> tells everyone that the normalcy rate has reached normal, and Arthur makes a comment of what what is normal anymore. Normal is when the cows come home. Trillian says was home as Box asks what a cow is. So we then hear the narrator. It is important to note that suddenly, and against all probability, a sperm whale had been called into existence several miles above the surface of an alien planet. Since this is a tenable position for a whale, 
This innocent creature had very little time to come to terms with its identity. This is what it thought as it fell. And... (laughs) It's a lot. And I quote, Ah! Who am I? What's happening? Why am I here? What's my purpose? What do I mean by who am I? As the whale, and then as the whale starts getting relaxed with the feeling of falling, he starts naming his body parts. He's like, okay, uh, what about this thing on my end? Like, I'll call it my tail. And he finds a name for the wind and the ground. And he's I like, I like the way he gets to ground. He's like, what is that? That's an, that's an owl sound. What, what is, it, what is that? What is that? Coming closer to me. It's like an owl sound. It's like, <laughs> ow, round, ground, ground. Oh, yeah, yes, that's yeah. it. It's coming closer. Hi, hi. I wonder if it'll be my friend. Hi, ground. And it just smacks into the earth. Uh, and so the guide then continues by saying, the only thing that went through the mind of the bowl of petunias as it fell was, oh no, not again. Many have speculated that if we knew why the petunias had thought that, we would know a lot more about the nature of the universe than we do now. Ooh. So why do you think about all that? Okay. <laughs> Stop trying to be deep. Yeah, literally. Does it scare you to ask yourself what your purpose in life is? I don't know what my purpose in this life What's is. What's your purpose in your life? To die. I don't like that. You don't like that? It's going to happen. That scares me. So we see the group walk toward portals to another dimension, as explained by Ford. And uh, the group just stands around freezing as Beeblebox figures out how to turn on the portal. Beeblebox is able to eventually get it on, and Arthur is still very skeptical because he doesn't know where it goes. And honestly, like, the way the portal looks, it's like a bunch of these... It looks like spinning, like, sharp things in the middle, and I would be pretty skeptical, too, to be honest. (laughs) Ford says if it's the wrong portal, they'll just come back and pick another one, and Arthur is upset how calmly Ford is taking all this, and the two start bickering as Trillian walks away to think for a second. So the guys argue back and forth over who is right and who is wrong, and Trillian is just over it and runs straight into the portal without thinking about it. Arthur is shocked as she did come back on the other side. Arthur is shocked that she didn't come back on the other side of the portal, because it looks like you could dive right through it, yeah. but she didn't go through on the other side. So Ford tells Arthur to not panic and dives into the portal as Beeble Box follows him, leaving Arthur all alone. With Marvin, might I add. Yeah. Arthur, super freaked out, tries to calm himself down and get psyched up to run into the portal, but by the time he does, it's too late and the portal is closed, and so now him and Marvin are stuck there. <laughs> we see that our group has made it to where at least I think they want to be, as we see Arthur and Marvin are both waiting for them to come back from the portal. Arthur then gets approached by another person, which freaks him out, but Arthur is like, who are you? And the man tells Arthur that his name was not important, but that Arthur must come with him. So Arthur and the man go back and forth for a while, with the man trying to convince Arthur to follow him, and this guy is like, oh, my name is Slardy Bartfast. He's like, I told you it wasn't important. Does that mean something? It's just funny. I feel like it's trying to say something, but I don't know what it's saying. It's not, it just sounds funny. Oh my god. That's such a boy thing. Yeah. <laughs> so Slart Slarty tell or Slart or Slarty? I'm pretty sure I call him Slart or Slater at one point, so uh, either way, the guy tells Arthur that his friends are safe and decided to follow uh, and Arthur follows him in another portal, leaving Marvin all alone. Yeah, it's Slart. Yeah. Slart for short. Slart Bartfast. So Slart shows Arthur what his job is, and it's to build planets, and she shows as he shows Arthur around what literally looks like a kid-friendly science museum where the exhibits tells you what about Earth and why we have volcanoes and rains and such. So Sartre tells Arthur that when the galactic economy collapsed, he started making custom luxury planets and that there has been a huge mix-up with Arthur's planet. 
Slart tells him it had to do with the plan of mice. And Arthur says, and man, and Slart's like, oh, I don't think man had much of a say in this, as Slart starts to show Arthur his plans. So Slart leads Arthur on this constriction elevator thing, and it goes down a dark hallway as uh, it carriage starts getting the carriage of it that they're sitting in starts going faster and faster. Slart explains that they're about to pass through worlds and to not be afraid. So they make it past the hallway and Arthur sees the factory floor, uh, which has mountains that are being made and unfinished planets, missing panels. And honestly, I think the sequence is like really cool to look at. I think it, it's cool, yeah. Yeah, it's so awesome. I feel like they put a lot of thought into this one. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, I thought Arthur met God. And I also think Martin Freeman is really good, like, reacting here. Like, he puts his hand over his face. Like, he can't believe what Arthur is seeing. But Arthur can't look away because it's just so, like, gorgeous. Yeah. I honestly think it's really great. What do you think? I don't know. I really like this whole scene. I thought it was cool. Yeah, it is. Would you make planets? Yeah, I think it'd be fun. I feel like you would enjoy that. Sahara. Dum, 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 dum. (laughs) You're so mean. Go on. realistic something's wrong i can feel it so we finally see what our other group four children beeblebrox finally meet the great computer deep thought beeblebrox asks if she has come up with the ultimate question and the deep thought answers no because she's been busy watching tv girl same and that she designed another computer to find that question for her. Which is insane, by the way. Yeah. And I feel like it would take longer to build that than to find the actual question. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Beeblebox is like, okay, cool, where is that computer? And the deep thought tells him it's another world, which Beeblebrox thinks she means it's on another world, but it literally is a world that she built to find the question. Mm -hmm. The Deep Dot tells the group it was a world until the Vogons destroyed it. Beaverbrox does not take this news well and walks away to think about what else he should do or what else he should base his whole personality on. (laughs) Ford goes after him to remind him that they need the gun that Hubba sent them for. Ford asks the Deep Dot for the gun that they were told about and Dot just opens a door for them. Like, Like Indiana Jones style. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. We come back to what Arthur and Slurt are doing, and Slurt shows Arthur a new Earth. Arthur asks if the old one was ever destroyed, and Slater says, this is just a second Earth to replace the old and the old and destroyed one, and they call this new Earth Earth Mark II. Arthur asks Slurt if he made Earth, and Slurt says, only partly, it's a big project. Slater confesses that he did make Norway, and he even got a reward for it. Good for him. Norway is beautiful, bro. Like, oh. Mm. Back to Ford, Beeblebrox, and Trillian. They have found the gun that Hama had wanted, and now Beeblebrox can get his second head back. But Beeblebrox has other plans and tells everyone goodbye, but Ford tries to stop him, but accidentally gets shot himself. So Beeblebrox is trying to commit some sewer slide, and it's not that kind of gun. After Ford is shot, he starts talking really fast and tells Beaverbrox he understands why he is so upset because this situation is upsetting. The guide then tells us what exactly Ford got shot with by saying, The point of view gun conveniently does precisely what its name suggests. If you point it at someone and pull the trigger, they instantly see things from your point of view. It was designed by Deep Thought, but commissioned by a consortium of intergalactic angry housewives who, after countless arguments with their husbands, were sick of ending those arguments with the phrase, you just don't get it, do you? Yeah. 
Anyway. <laughs> so both Trillian and Ford shoot Beeble Rocks, and he finally understands that he has been acting a bit childish and life should go on. Trillian likes this gun and shoots Beeble Rocks again and tells the group she can see why Helma would want one. She tells the group they got what they came for, so it's time to go back to Arthur, who is waiting, and Beeble Rocks tells her who cares, and Trillian says she does because the only two people that got left since their home was destroyed. Trillian shoots Beeble Rocks again after he told her to relax. He finally sees her point of view as to why she's so upset that her home is destroyed and she's been walking around with the guy who gave the order on top of uh, that Trillian wanted to know the ultimate question of life and now she'll never know because in the end it really doesn't matter. She, she shoots Beeble Rocks again and he understands that he has been with guys like him before and they ne never truly get her and Trillian is worried that she is blown with the only guy who does get her. Bro, Arthur's an asshole. Don't do it. Don't do it, girl. <laughs> Trillian gets teary-eyed and Beeble Rocks takes a gun away from her and shoot and goes to shoot her next. Uh, Trillian tells him it won't work on her because she is a woman. Then a mysterious door opens, Indiana Jones style, and to find a couple of mice. We then cut back to Arthur and Slart as they watched Earth 2 get made. Slart reveals that his old planet Arthur lived on was commissioned and paid for and run by mice. I fucking knew it. We learn that mice are the most intelligent beings and that they have been experimenting on humans. Arthur says, no, that's wrong. We are the ones experimenting on them. And Slart says he can see why the mice would want him to, th him to think that, but really Arthur and everyone else on Earth were actually elements in their computer program. Arthur tells Slart that he always had this feeling of something going on behind the scenes in the world, and Slart tells him that is just normal paranoia, paranoia and that everyone in the universe gets that feeling. Slart says that what really goes behind the scenes is so absurd that the average person is better off occupying their time with something that makes them happy. Slart tells Arthur that, I quote, I'd much rather be happy than write any day, end quote. Never read the book, but that line seems very bookish to me. Mm -hmm. I think I rather like the idea, like, not knowing all the answers in a sense to always preoccupying my mind with things that make us happy, but make us feel whole. And I think part of the human experience is chasing moments of happiness. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I can see how that statement can be a little problematic because, like, we do need to pay attention to our surroundings, you know, and, like, fight for what we believe in. Yeah. But, like, I don't know. I also like the idea of just, like, like working towards happiness, you know? Like, I don't have to know everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now I get you. So Slart shows Arthur his home back to normal, and Slart tells him it's all there and everything works, and welcome home. Arthur, excited to go back to normalcy, opens the drawer to find his friends eating a whole bunch of food and happy to see him as well. Arthur is like, what happened to you guys? As he pours himself some tea. So British. Love some tea. Ford explains that their host attacked them, but then the host made it up to, to the group by bringing them to Earth to and feeding them. Ford, getting emotional for laughs, by the way, says everything now is right and everything is delicious. The mice had then began to talk to Arthur, and Arthur does a quick office fourth wall break and tells the group they are talking mice. The mice tell him to sit and to drink and to talk business. The mice tell Arthur that they have spent a lot of time on Earth looking for the ultimate question. The mice tell Arthur this is why they are here because the mice have been offered a lucrative contract to do several 5-D TV chat shows. You mean 5-D? Yeah! But no, 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 this is how it was on the TV. Oh. Okay, so you're wrong. Whatever. 
But the point is, they must have a product. They need the ultimate question, or at least a sound ultimate. The mice tell Arthur that they need his brain, because it is the missing piece of this overdue puzzle that they have been trying to solve. Arthur says no, that he's using his brain, so the mice cannot have it. So the mice end up try- tying up Arthur so, to get to his brain. Arthur calls his, for his friends, but the food was laced with something, and they're just completely out of it and cannot help Arthur. The mice pull up with this laser-looking gun thing, but, and it's like a saw, I guess. But the mice reassure Arthur that he won't feel a thing. Arthur frantically tells the mice that they want the answer to 42, but what is 6 times 7? Or how many vogons does it take to change a light bulb? Or how many roads must a man walk down? The mice stop the saw just inches from Arthur's face, and the mice say, those questions aren't half bad. Arthur tells the mice no one will have the right answer to any of those questions, and even knowing the answer won't make us any happier. Arthur then gets sentimental by telling the mice the only question he wants an answer for is knowing if Trillian is the right one for him. Arthur tells the mice that the answer to that question was not 42, but yes, because for one week in a sad existence, she made him happy. Oh. Trillian wakes up from her food coma to tell Arthur that that was a good answer. The mice tell Arthur that they don't want to be happy, they want to be famous, and they start to saw again to take Arthur's brain. Arthur is able to use whatever strength he got from that speech and wiggle his way out of chains he was bolted to to get the saw off of his head. The mice close to the uh, uh, to the point of view gun uh, try to shoot Arthur, but Arthur ends up smashing the mice and using the helmet that was on his head, waking up the rest of his friends. When Arthur moves the helmet, thinking we'll see the dead mice, really we see the two smashed little girls from earlier who asked Deep Thought the ultimate question in the first place. The girls end up disappearing like they were never there, and the group hear the Vogon marching right toward them. And so the Vogon are right outside Arthur's house with the VP, Yeltz, and Marvin who is upset from getting left behind. Yeltz tells the group that they are here to protect the president and start firing their ray guns at them. The group runs and hides, leaving the POV gun behind. The vice president screams at the Vogon to stop firing. We see Marvin walk to join the group and he asks why they're running. Vogons are known to have the worst aim in the galaxy. But then Marvin gets shot in the head. Super sad. I know. Vogons stop firing as Marvin falls to the ground and dies. I also remember crying here as a kid because I started getting teary-eyed when I watched this resulting in a kid flashback. Oh my god. (laughs) The group seeing Marvin gone get sad as more Vogon approach them. Ford chases them with a towel as Bebo Brox gets into the parked caravan, asking how to drive this thing. Chillian, trying to think of a plan, sees the POV gun lying on the ground. She turns to Arthur, telling him that they need it. Arthur makes a run for the gun, only to get stopped by shooting Vogons, so Arthur and Chillian and Ford make it into the caravan for safety. The Vogons are shooting at the caravan so hard it starts to turn over, but then somehow Marvin gets up and uses the POV gun on the Vogon, causing them to feel depressed and cease fire. The group is able to get out of the caravan and thank Marvin, Marvin for saving their lives as the depressed Vogons get taken away. After all is said and done, we see Slark go up to Arthur and inform him that since Earth 2 is so close to completion that they're going to go ahead and finish it. Slark tells them that they can put Earth exactly as before unless there's anything they want to change. Christian! Yes? If you had an option, what would you choose? Get rid of Florida. Are you serious? Or Ohio. <laughs> Chris is like, we don't need it. We don't need we it. We don't need it. So I was like, okay, I'd get rid of Christian. 
Honestly, I would be like, can we have universal health care in this universe? I don't think that's how that works. This is exactly how that works. Make people think that. Okay. Do you want to read? Yeah, go ahead. Arthur turns to Trillian and tells Slart that the Earth could use less of Arthur. Slart is like, okay, cool, and gets back on the phone and tells the team that Earth will be as it was before. Arthur then tells Trillian that they should go somewhere. Happy Trillian agrees, and Ford cuts in, saying he knows a great food place at the edge of the galaxy. So everyone gets on an elevator that will take them to a spaceship. As Beeple Box tells the VP he is so confused as to what is happening, and the VP tells him that they will get it all sorted out. Ford then asks Arthur if he has his towel, and Arthur's like, yeah, but will I need it? Ford tells him he'll him always and Arthur says right because I wouldn't want to go anywhere without my wonderful towel towel which makes Trillian laugh as she goes for a kiss as they go back up to the ship the people working on earth too wave goodbye as the commencement of the life cycle starts we see thunder and lightning water and raindrops organisms multiplying we see waves and bugs and birds and all sorts of clouds as everything returns to normal like it all never happened even the dolphins had come back oh we then see space in our ship with our lovely crew inside. As Marvin says, not that anyone cares what he has to say, but the restaurant at the other is at the other end of the universe. We see the ship stop and turn around and turn yeah, turn around and turn into a different probability, such as a lawn gnome, a hat, a wheelbarrow, a statue, a cup of tea, and finally Douglas Adams himself. As our group blasts off into the universe in search of that restaurant, and maybe another adventure. The end. end. Woo. We finally did it. We did it. Christian. So hero. I feel like towards the last 40 minutes of this film, it really falls off, especially with the pacing. Like, the ending and the beginning are both really good. It's just everything in the middle is kind of like, oh my god. Like, that whole, like, a Trillian getting arrested thing did not need to happen. Yeah. Do you think the film is more for the people who read the book? Yeah. <laughs> what makes you say that? Come on. Be fucking for real. Be fucking for real. Do you think Arthur changes throughout the film? Mm, he becomes more, like, independent, if that makes sense. Like, he stops relying on others. I mean, I guess. Do you think anyone is a likable character? Like, there are some characters I enjoyed, but I feel like they all just ended up annoying the crap out of me. Mm, yeah. I don't know. I didn't really like any of the characters other than Morvan. Yeah. That's it. And he, <laughs> he, he died. Dude, I know. It's so sad. Do you think this film succeeds in making us think of our own answer to the ultimate question? Yeah. What is your ultimate question? Why are we here? Why are we Just here? to suffer? <laughs> I think that's a good one. Yeah. I don't know. Just more like, when did we get here? Oh, when did we get or here? Or why are we here? Yeah. yeah. Why is better than one? Yeah. I think for me, it's more like, why do we do the things we do? Like, why do we have these emotions? Mm -hmm. Why do we all go through the kind of the same thing, you know? Yeah. I think that's like why do we love why do we why are we hungry why are we all hungry like yeah why like why do we eat why do we have to eat these certain foods and not this food loose yeah. hair getting deep yeah you know what I mean yeah 
What do you mean? But yeah, that'd be my ultimate question. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So, do you want to read this film? Is this a puff puff pass or a puff puff smash? Honestly, it's it's a puff puff pass. Yeah, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say that too. It's just I agree. It was fun the first time I watched it yeah. a few years ago, but mm-hmm. it's just. I know. I thought this would be fun, but it was actually really boring. Yeah, I'm gonna give it a five. Really, same. It's literally. You can't be. I'm not. I literally was thinking about this. I was literally thinking about this. I did not take it. Sure. It's because we live together. Like it's not a bad movie. But yeah. It means, well, I can't take it back. I'm, I'm changing my vote. I'm giving it a four. Okay. I'm sticking to the five. I don't think it's that bad. Congratulations. Do you think it'll be better than our next movie? Yeah. What is our next movie, Christian? Wait. We need to do our blunt rotation first. Nightmare boat rotation, go. Uh, uh, Beeble Rocks. Okay. Um, the uh, Vogons. Okay. And the twins. <laughs> They're vibe killers. The twins? You know, the twin girls. The mice. Oh, okay. Yeah. They're vibe killers. Vibe killers. I would say Hubba because he scares me. <laughs> okay. Those arsenal cans. Arsenal what? Those cans that they at the at that one planet that oh, yeah. on. Uh, that one Vogon in the in the in the first window. Yeah. In window number four. There's always five though. Yeah. Uh, not for me it's window number nine. Really? I remember saying window number nine. Window number nine. You don't know what we're talking about, but we know what we're talking <laughs> it's about. It's gonna get edited out anyway. <laughs> Um, I need one more. Yeah. God, you took one of mine. Whatever. Oh, uh, those, uh, that girl that had the multiple girls, but she, they only had one, like, one body. Then a bunch of pets, her. Her. Okay. <laughs> so, Christian, what is our next movie? I don't know. It is a certain year because they remade it. Don't make fun of me. Stop it. Do not make fun of me. We are watching the 2001 Planet of the Apes. Oh yeah. That one. 2001? Yeah, 2001. I know. I thought it was older. Or younger, I should say. That's the one like with Andy Serkis, right? I think that's the one that uh, Tim Burton directed. Hold on, I gotta make sure. I thought we were. Let's see. 2001. Planet of the Apes. Are we actually watching this one? Yeah. I thought we were watching the newer one. No. 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 <laughs> I don't, I don't want to watch this one. Why? Because it's scary looking? Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to watch the new one. No. <laughs> Stay tuned for that as we conclude our sci-fi movie month with Planet of the Apes. You are, are can we? find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you can... Uh, listen to we're on every single platform almost we are the couple that is smoking in the background you can follow us on twitter at puff pass podcast we also have a tumblr 
Puff Puff Pass podcast. And if you email us just to say hi, tell us your thoughts about this film, you can email us at puffpuffpodcast23 at gmail.com. We post new episodes every midnight on Sunday, and we have sober thoughts on the last Wednesday of every month, where me and Christian just talk about every movie to continue our thoughts while completely and utterly sober. Sober. Just a quick update. I have gotten a little bit better. I still have a cough. Other than that, I'm completely fine. Same here. But Christian is sick. Christian got sick. Yeah, she got me sick. I'd say we're doing a lot better than last week for sure. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it was bad. <laughs> but yeah, continue your guys' January journey. Hope you guys are sticking to your New Year's resolution. And enjoy this sci-fi episode. Say bye, Christian. Bye, Christian.